Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. Okay, it's our custom to go around and introduce ourselves. <coughs> I would suggest that you take sort of a receptive breath and hear the name in front of yours before you rush into your own name. My name is Joe. My name is Dennis. My name is Stephanie. My name is Tony. My name is Matthew. My name is Mark. My name is Larry. I'm Clint. I'm David. Hey, do one of them. My name is Jerry. My name is Bob. I'm Jim. Don. Mike. Peter. Jim. I'm George. Michael. Grisha. David. And my name is Dale. Our speaker today, Dale Borglum, Borglum is the founder and executive director of the Living Dying Project. He's a pioneer in the conscious dying movement and has worked directly with thousands of people with life-threatening illness and their families for over 30 years. In 1981, he founded the first residential facility for people who wish, who wish to die consciously in the United States, the Dying Center. He has taught and lectured extensively on the topics of spiritual support for those with life-threatening illness, caregiving as a spiritual practice, and healing at the edge of illness, of death, of loss, of crisis. He's the co-author of Journey of Awakening, a meditator's guidebook, and has taught meditation for the past 35 years. Welcome. Thank you, Joe. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad to be here today. I think this is about the fifth year in a row that I've been invited back. And today I want to talk about Weaving Devotion into Daily Life. I have been a Buddhist meditator for a long time. Uh, I'm a recovering mathematician. <laughs> I have a PhD in mathematics. And that taught me to analyze, categorize, and understand. So that in a way, Vipassana and Zen practice were very natural practices for me. Uh, my first meditation teacher, luckily enough for me, was Suzuki Roshi at San Francisco Zen Center. And I've also done a lot of Vipassana meditating. But I have to admit that I have a really difficult time being aware all day long. <laughs> And 
even though I've been meditating, I think the bio that you read is really old. I think I've been a meditation teacher now for about 45 years instead of 35 years. That I notice again and again that just the uh, attempt to be present in my life is overwhelmed by the hundred emails a day that I get and people who are suffering and dying and all those things that are going on. I remember I was in India and I was doing four straight 10-day Vipassana retreats with a guy named Goenka. And between two of the retreats I needed to go to a bank and change some traveler's checks. So in India, uh, going to a bank and changing traveler's checks is not quite as simple as you might expect. You might be in the bank for three hours or so just to give the person the traveler's checks and get your money back. And I was sitting there waiting. Uh, In the bank waiting also was another guy from the retreat. And I said, uh, what are you doing? He said, I'm watching my breath. What are you doing? (laughs) And I was enjoying being in India. I wasn't really watching my breath. So what I really did come to, though, eventually, was that there are different schools of Buddhism. There are developmental schools, if you will. One builds upon the other. And I'd like to talk about that development and then particularly get into the uh, tantric stage of practice, which is uh, Vajrayana or Tibetan Buddhism. It's also certainly part of Hinduism, and one could make the case that it really is the core of any devotional teaching, whether it's Judaic or Christian or Sufi or whatever it might happen to be. So. Recently, some psychologists at the University of Wisconsin did a study. They were Buddhists, so they kind of set it up to show, I'm sure, what they wanted to show. And what they found out, to nobody's big surprise, is that mindfulness increases a sense of well-being. You sleep better, you have better relationships, etc. No big surprise there. But what they did find that was much more interesting was that if you also cultivate compassion, it really speeds up the movement toward well-being. So now, instead of just doing one thing, being mindful, you're doing two things. You're being mindful and you're opening your heart to what it is you're being mindful of. Okay, so Vipassana... Hinayana Theravada Buddhism is about learning to be present in our lives and particularly becoming aware of the problematic nature of the way we live in dualistic existence, the way (coughs) suffering arises. Uh, I work with people who are often approaching death and it is my experience that cancer does not cause suffering that dying does not cause suffering. But it is resistance to cancer, resistance to dying that causes suffering. And you might say, well, of course, if you're uh, having cancer in your body, you're going to be suffering. But it's much easier to work with the suffering if we're clear that it's arising from the resistance, not from the cancer itself. So Vipassana, when we go into awareness deeply enough, we begin to see how suffering arises, how there is this grasping, there is this 
reifying of the ego structure that uh, is deluded into thinking that it is the locus of our subjectivity, that there is an I who is experiencing an objective reality out there, and the ego is who is doing it. And we'll get to what actually is the case when we get to the Vajrayana stage. So that if, in fact, you're able to pay attention clearly enough, then compassion begins to rise on its own, and or you can begin to cultivate compassion as the Mahayana Zen uh, next stage of Buddhist practice. And Mahayana Buddhism, large vehicle, brings in the notion of the bodhisattva ideal that we're practicing not just to liberate ourselves from suffering, but we're practicing for all beings. And for me, and I think for a lot of people, that loving, open-hearted motivation is a great boon, a great aid to practice. Practice is difficult. It means looking at places where we're cowardly, where we're frightened, where we're arrogant, where we're, as well as all the beautiful places. And if there isn't some strong motivation in the beginning, and then this open-hearted response to these places in our psyche that, that uh, aren't always so pretty, practice becomes a very difficult thing. So it really is, for me at least, the open-hearted quality, the compassionate quality, that makes it much easier to bring awareness into my daily life. So that, as well as being aware, can I be aware with an open heart? Can I bring a softness, a tenderness, an intimacy to those places where I'm seeing suffering around me, uh, in the political dialogue in our country, what's happening to the planet, and certainly and often primarily what's happening to myself. Traditionally, compassion is taught in Asian uh, cultures as compassion for the suffering other person. Because these practices were developed by and for people a few thousand years ago who were grounded, centered, and love their mommy and daddy. How many people in the room is that? Right? So that we need to, in a way, go back and have compassion for the place, the places where we aren't fully able to uh, be present, rather than assuming that we're ready to begin this great project of disidentifying with that which is separate with our ego structure and identifying with our true nature. The Dalai Lama, on his third visit to America, said, Now I'm beginning to understand, and it makes me very sad, you Americans don't like yourselves. So that it's kind of assumed in practice that we like ourselves enough to let go of these difficulties, what's arising through awareness. And consequently, it's of crucial importance for Westerners to bring compassion to these places where we're having a hard time being present. There is then a third yana of Buddhism 
Hinayana, which is Vipassana, Mahayana, which is Zen, Vajrayana, Tibetan Buddhism. And in Tibetan Buddhism, when the practitioner has done sufficient practice in cultivating awareness and cultivating compassion, then the empowerment stage begins. One goes into the Lama, and he or she, it's almost always a he, uh, hits you on the head with a magic stick or something, and gives you a mantra and gives you a visualization. And you then are empowered to become the deity who represents this wholesome quality. So that initially, in devotional practice, we often feel that uh, I'm inadequate, I'm coming from a uh, sense of poverty. God is great, God is wonderful, I hope it's okay to use God in this esteemed hall here. And uh, God is so much greater than I. But in Vajrayana Buddhism, we begin to find out that this deity out there is really our own true nature that what we're invoking in the beginning of practice is who we actually are. That it isn't something separate. And the way this happens is because the quality of heart is spacious, the quality of the heart is, is uh, selfless. And consequently, as the heart is revealed to be more and more sky-like, uh, the divine nature of who we are begins to be revealed. So, what's being said here is that one can then begin to have this tantric relationship with one's experience, beyond pure and impure. That I can look around the room, you can look around the room, and we can see our differences, we can see uh, how we are finite beings, but at the same time, we can go beyond any judgment. We can go beyond even a dualistic loving and be in that place where the deity is not some uh, notion of something outside that's better, but it is inherent in all that we are experiencing. So, Tantra literally means to weave. And uh, the notion then is, can we weave this sense of sacredness into our daily lives? And I find that if I have a more tantric relationship with life, it's much easier to be aware. If I'm just trying to be with my breath or trying to be with things as a, as a practice, uh, it, I find it hard to integrate that into a very busy life that's hooked up with technology and a lot of people. But if I am more working with seeing God in all that's out there, it makes it much easier. Now, I fully appreciate that when I use the word seeing God, that I have no idea what you think I'm talking about. Uh, I was raised as a Danish Lutheran, and uh, a year or so ago, I was looking through one of my bookcases and found Luther's Small Catechism, a book I had to memorize when I was in parochial school. And I had to memorize things that said essentially, 
I am a poor sinner. I am totally inadequate. Please, dear God, in your wonderness, uh, pay attention to me, even though I don't deserve it at all. I'm really just uh, completely inadequate. And the unworthiness inherent in that makes it very difficult to have some relationship with the divine that is uh, not wounding. So I had to go to India and be with Neem Kroli Baba, Ram Dass's guru, my guru, to begin to reconnect with uh, a sense that loving God was a safe thing to do. Now, in Buddhism, they often don't talk about God, at least until we get to Vajrayana Buddhism. And it's fine to just talk about having devotion to the Triple Gem, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. Uh, it doesn't have to be an anthropomorphized notion of God that's out there. And in fact, when we anthropomorphize God, we tend to project our own limitations onto that projection, so that if we judge ourselves, we will project a judgmental God. If we uh, don't really love ourselves, we'll project a God who is loving only if you act in certain kinds of ways. So uh, it, it's there's a certain wisdom in Vajrayana Buddhism that we don't get to the empowerment stage until we have spent a lot of time cultivating awareness, really getting how suffering arises, and a lot of time cultivating compassion. Uh, the Bodhisattva vow, as I'm sure you remember, is sentient beings are numberless. I vow to save them. That's a pretty tall order. Desires are inexhaustible. I vow to put an end to them. Can we do that today? <laughs> the dharmas are boundless. I vow to master them. The Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to attain it. So clearly, <laughs> that's something that we're going to fail at. It's a, it's a goal. It's a vow that keeps bringing us back pointing us in the direction of freedom. So I remember I was in India and there was Ramdas and there was Maharaji and Ramdas was having a particularly difficult day and he came to Maharaji and he said, Maharaji, I feel so impure. And Maharaji looked up Ramdas' sleeve and he said, I don't see any impurity. So imagine being able to look at yourself to look at others and not see any impurity, how much easier it would be to be aware. Recent experiments in quantum mechanics are validating what tantric mystics said thousands of years ago. And what they are saying is that reality is not objective and separable. And what that means, an objective reality, is that there's something out there that is not affected by observation. There's actually a brick wall on the other side of the room, and that's there whether I'm looking at it or not, it's just a solid brick wall. And that reality is separable means that if I pick up this piece of paper, there is something potentially on the other side of the world 
that is not affected by that movement. Okay, but quantum mechanics has proved that that cannot be the case, that those things can't be true. And what is the case, according to quantum mechanics and according to tantric wisdom, is that consciousness is flowing through us and creating reality, rather than we are perceiving a solid reality through our senses. So just for a moment, imagine that I'm not this separate thing sitting talking to all you guys, and that your ears and your eyes are not receiving the solid reality, but that you are a filtering device and the one consciousness, only one consciousness, is flowing through you and it's creating what's happening in this room right now. I mean, is there any logical reason why that isn't completely as possible as this apparent delusion that we are these separate ego structures and that we are receiving all of this information through our senses. How, how different reality then begins to seem, how there is possibly then the, uh, the, the sacred quality of existence begins to be revealed. So, you probably all heard of a dance called the Country Two-Step. And I've come up with a new dance called the Tantric Three-Step. Uh, it's not really a dance, but it's, it's a, a practice. The first step is becoming aware, Vipassana, being mindful of exactly what it is that's going on. The second step of this dance is to be having a loving, compassionate relationship uh, toward what it is that's going on, with what it is that's going on. And the third step is this surrender into consciousness, this surrender into, in a way, dying into the sacred nature of things, having a devotional relationship with what it is that we are experiencing. So the Mueller report came out, I believe it was yesterday or Friday, two days ago, one day ago, whatever it was, and can we have a, a sacred relationship with thinking about the political implications of what's going to be happening in our country as the next e election is approaching, that there's going to be, it's probably going to be a very divisive time. I would be kind of shocked if it were, were not. And it's very easy to... Uh, not keep our hearts open to what it is that's going on. I, I tell people that when you are dying, Donald Trump will be at your bedside. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> there are people laughing, there are people shaking their head no. And what I'm saying is if there is any place in you that reacts when I say Donald Trump, that place of reactivity in you will be there as you're dying. So it's not that he in form is going to be sitting there, but the place where attachment arises in response to that notion, that's going to be there as you're dying. So that compassion is about keeping our heart open. 
compassion in relationship to Donald Trump, whether you love him or you hate him, is not about, it's not compassion to Donald Trump. It's you being in the state of compassion and openness and being able to think about him at the same time. Can you think about him and not close your heart? To the extent you can't, he's winning, right? Is it possible to go back to this compassion stage, to the Mahayana stage, and have a spacious heart? The nature of the heart is boundless, empty of self, vast as the sky. There are three qualities to the compassionate heart. It's connected, it's warm, and it's spacious. Can we think about Donald Trump? Even if you're somebody who really thinks he's the greatest president that there ever has been, and there are people in my immediate family who think that. People I have Thanksgiving dinner with. Okay. So that whether it's a pushing away or grasping at, in either way, that closes the heart. Can we be with that concept and stay wide open? And if we can do that, then this tantric possibility of just realizing that reality is flowing from us rather than we're grabbing all this stuff through our senses becomes a real possibility. So that this, this tantric three-step dance, can we do it right now? Can you be aware of, in your body, how you're reacting to what it is that I'm saying? Without making up a story about it, what it is... What is it that's going on right now in you? Without any narrative, just just naked meeting what's going on, can your heart open to that? Can there be an intimacy with that, a tenderness in relationship to that? And then can we, in that spaciousness of that open heart, go into the possibility of this devotional reality that this is a this is sacred. It's beyond pure and impure. Uh, Tantra teaches that every experience can reveal an ecstatic quality, and that all that exists is imbued with consciousness. Can we have that, that uh, juiciness? Can we have that connectedness with our experience? Uh, in a way, the beloved, if there is a beloved, can only be all of it. it. It's not only the good stuff. The beloved can only be everything. So I'd like to just stop for a moment before I plunge on and ask, are there any remarks or comments? I'd rather not this be a... Uh, do I have an hour here? How long does it go on for? What's the? Until uh, about five up. Yeah. Okay. So I've got I've got another couple of pages here of quotes and notes and uh, things. And uh, but I would just like to ask if there are any comments before we go on. I, I have a um, the thing with the quantum physics realities. Um, I find totally fascinating. Um, uh, but like a couple of last month 
a chunk fell on the San, San Rafael Bridge from one level to another. Right. And it ground traffic to a halt throughout, not just the North Bay, throughout the entire Bay Area. Right. And so there's some cogency to that being having some reality too. Um. <laughs> <laughs> it was a big piece of rock. It, it was, was real. A big piece of rock. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, I, I get. So I'm not saying that there's not a reality out there, uh -huh. but that the current medical model, for instance, is that the brain is fundamental to mind. But in fact, what we're saying here is that the mind creates the brain and the rock. That the rock that fell down is, uh, contained in awareness. It's contained in consciousness. So that there's this Buddhist saying or trope or whatever it would be that if a tree falls in the forest, and there is no consciousness there, there's no sound. Because sound is sound waves meeting consciousness. Let me, let me give you my favorite scientific experiment. It's got three parts. First part is not so interesting, second part is mildly interesting, third part is mind-blowing. Okay, so they found some people who supposedly had uh, paranormal abilities, the ability to uh, affect physical reality. And they developed a machine that, that generated subatomic particles that randomly decayed into subatomic particle A or B. And they asked these, these people with the, the paranormal abilities, could you visualize that these decaying particles go to side A as we do this experiment? And there were people that could do this in a highly statistically significant way. Yeah, okay. Part number two, they said, we're going to do this experiment tomorrow. We'd like you to visualize today that it goes to side A tomorrow, or to side B, whichever. And there were people that could do that in a highly statistically significant way. But the interesting part, the mind-blowing part, is they did the experiment yesterday. And they said, hey, we did the experiment yesterday. We would like you to visualize today that yesterday it went to side A. And what do you think happened? What do you think happened? They went to side A. What? They went to side A. Not so simple. <laughs> if anybody had looked at the results, if the results had entered into human consciousness, all the visualizing the world didn't change it at all. But if the results were only in a computer hard drive, then they could change the past. Mm. Can you say that one more time? <laughs> they ran the experiment yesterday. Yeah. And if a scientist had looked at the results of what happened yesterday, then all the visualizing today had no effect. It was just, I mean, they were doing this like thousands of times. So it's like flipping a coin 10,000 times. It's going to, because of the law of large numbers, it's going to come pretty close to 50-50, right? Okay. So no effect at all if anybody had looked at it. But if nobody had looked at it, if, if, the, if, if the results had not entered into consciousness, then the past was affected. 
I mean, language breaks down a little bit here. To say we changed the past might not be completely accurate. Yes, sir. Is it possible to come up with an experimental control for what you're describing so you have the, un the unaffected and at the same time the affected happening on the same day so that you know whether what you've just seen was real or valid? I don't know if I'm making myself... Yeah, and uh, I don't want to go too far into this little detour here, but one could do that, but I mean... Uh, Supposedly, these people did this a whole bunch of times, and it was very clear that if anybody looked at it, there was no effect. If anybody looked at it, there was no effect, but if it had not entered into consciousness, it was as if it were, it was, you were trying to affect the present or the future. So we could get into Schrodinger's cat and all that stuff, and I think we're kind of drifting off into the nether reaches here a little bit, if I can... Uh, so, my first meditation teacher, Suzuki Roshi, said, I don't know anything about consciousness, I just try to teach my students how to hear the birds sing. Okay. And my guru, Maharaji, said, it's better to see God in everything than to try to figure it out. So, what we're doing here is, in a way, trying to figure it out. I'm trying to give a pep talk for... <laughs> this Vajrayana path is having some devotional relationship with our experience and our reality, even if you're not somebody who has a theistic worldview, or there's a God upstairs, or a God imminent, or however you want to look at that, but that there's a sacred quality to reality. There's a wonderful, wonderful teacher that I'm sure many of you have heard of, Ramana Maharshi, who is the fellow that talked about self-inquiry, who his main thing was asking yourself, who am I? And here's just a small little experiment. I'm going to ask you a question that I'd like you to respond to, not necessarily out loud, but just to yourself. Are you aware? Are you aware? You answered that question. You probably said yes. And the trick is to stay in that place between the end of the question and the yes. <laughs> That's where you stay, right? Not, not the content of awareness, but awareness itself. Letting the content take care of itself. What happened between the question mark, are you aware, and the yes? You were looking at awareness. Oh, yes, there's awareness. And there's always awareness, whether it's between the question mark and the answer, or right now when you're listening to the sound of my voice, or the silence when I stop, what is it that's constant? What is it that continues? So I'm bringing up Ramana Maharshi because one of his favorite teachers was a 14th century mystic called Namdev, who his whole thing was just saying God's name. And I love mantra. I have a mala here that I've had on me since 1968 or whatever that was. And he said that this, this Saint Namdev said, the universe, he said, the name permeates the universe densely. The name is form, and form is name. So that, in a way, it's all consciousness, it's all God, that there's no distinction between God and name. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So, in, in Tantric Buddhism, in Vajrayana, 
Buddhism, very often people spend a lot of time saying mantras is a way of opening the heart, of creating that relationship with the sacred. Also from Suzuki Roshi, when you bow to Buddha, you should have no idea of Buddha. You should become one with Buddha himself. When you become one with Buddha, one with everything that exists, you find the true meaning of being. When you forget all your dualistic ideas, everything becomes your teacher, and everything can be an object of worship. So here's Suzuki Roshi, uh, Soto Zen. The whole practice was just sitting. There was no mantras. There was no deity. There was nothing to worship. But what he's saying is that when you're just sitting, everything can become an object of worship. How much, how different that makes our practice when everything becomes an object of worship. How it brings a juiciness to it. It brings a, an aliveness rather than I have to be aware, I have to be a better Buddhist. Can you explain what something being an object of worship manifests itself as? I mean, like, you know, look at a pillow and make that an object of, of worship. How would that work? Well, I remember once I was at a, a longer Vipassana retreat, and toward the end of the retreat, my mind was really clear, and uh, for breakfast, we had grapefruit. <clears throat> And I bit into a section of grapefruit, and the little globules, the little sacks of grapefruit juice that make up a piece of grapefruit started exploding in my mouth. And I went into this ecstatic state. I realized that I had never really tasted a grapefruit before, but you start biting into the grapefruit and you say, oh, it's a pretty good one, or it's a little dry, or, or then you start thinking about the newspaper you're reading or whatever it might happen to be. And the, the eating the grapefruit became an object of worship, or the grapefruit did, that it was, it was everything in the universe was in that grapefruit. One of the notions of Tantra is that the body, your body, my body, is the microcosm for the whole universe. So that what we're experiencing here is everything, if you will. If I can, I'd like to tell you one brief story that maybe gives you a better answer to it. I was in India with Maharaji and uh, was seated with him and a friend of mine and a bunch of other devotees and he turned to us and said uh, how much do you pay for milk in America and my friend made a quick calculation and said so many rupees per kilo which is the way you buy, buy milk in India of course and Maharaji turned to these other people and went on and on and said, can you imagine how much they pay for milk in America? Oh, my God. He talked on and on and on. i just gotten there. And I thought, well, maybe this guy isn't quite who Ramdas has said he is. I mean, I've, I just got my PhD at Stanford, and now we're talking about the price of milk in America. And he, he turned back and said, how much do you pay for milk again? And he, we told him, and he went on and on for another 10 minutes. And I think, what is going on here? And all of a sudden... There was an explosion in my mind that I know came from him. I don't know how I can tell you that. But the epiphany that I had was, we can talk about important things. We can talk about God and interesting things, but it just makes the mind busy. If we talk about the mundane, 
it allows us to plunge into the ocean of love. And in that, in that moment, I went into this ecstatic state that I was in for the rest of the day. So that right now, that object of worship is right here. It doesn't matter if it's a piece of grapefruit or talking about the price of milk or me talking about Suzuki Roshi quotes or we looking at the Buddha statue. You know, they say, if you see the Buddha on the road, kill him. Because if he's something outside of yourself, then it's not, it's not the real Buddha. It's all the Buddha, or else none of it's the Buddha. So, this is Hanuman. This is Hanuman, right? It, it, doesn't, it doesn't really... Uh, so, let me put it... Uh, let me go back to a part that I kind of skipped over in my enthusiasm here. We're often fixated on our experience, and because of that we suffer. So that in devotional practices we, we create a relative deity. We think about Christ, or we think about Buddha, or we think about Padmasambhava, or we think about Shiva, or whatever, or we think about the higher power in the 12 steps. And now there's something more subtle to pay attention to. Instead of our own stuff, there's this more subtle fixation of the relative deity. And by loving the relative deity, by going into that, it reveals the absolute deity, which is everything, which is space, which is what I was saying before about its pure consciousness, that quality between the question mark, are you aware, and the answer yes. So that's the formless deity. There's also the deity in form, but the, the relative deity reveals the absolute deity. Is that is that? <laughs> yeah. Um, in your research about consciousness, have you included research into the effects of psychedelics? Because I, through experiments, experiences with psilocybin, I, I see a tree as, as a unique, special thing that I'm fascinated with, whether it's just something to walk by. And it sounds very similar to to, uh, to describe as, as everything is, is you know conscious. I have been around a lot of dying people. I have, in the long distant past, I have taken copious amounts of psychedelic substances, and I've done a lot of meditating, and they all say the same thing. So that uh, Michael Pollan wrote a book lately called You Can Change Your Mind, and uh, what he quotes a lot of people, and what everybody says, it seems, who have taken psychedelics, is they have an experience and they know for a certain fact that it is not a hallucination. They're not uh, creating something that's not there already, but a level of reality that's always there is being revealed to them. And this level of reality, depending on the dosage that you're taking, is uh, a direct experience of consciousness. So then we... So somebody asked Maharaji, Maharaji, uh, what about taking psychedelics? And he called psychedelics, he called it yogi medicine. He said, well, if, if uh, a long time ago yogis had the knowledge of how to use these drugs, but now pretty much that wisdom has been lost. But if you don't have faith in God, it allows you to go into the room with God for a couple of hours and have his darshan, her darshan, be present fully with God, but then you've got to leave the room and you have to find that faith on your own. 
So if you've never taken psychedelics and you have a very wavering faith, then maybe having that one uh, awakening experience can be very useful. Certainly, there is now much current research about using psychedelics to work with fear of death for people with life-threatening illnesses. And there's very uh, positive results with either MDMA or psilocybin or even ketamine and working with people with deep depression or, or PTSD. But this is the Buddhist society here, so we're, we're, we're not taking drugs today. We're talking about how can we, how can we uh, find this directly. And the, to me, the problem with taking drugs is that you, it's not just the rock falling off of the bridge that Jim was talking about, but you, you, you take a substance out of a bottle or a little pouch or something and you put it in your mouth, and it's hard not to be assuming that there's this external thing you're putting internal to you and that's what's making a difference. That it's, it really creates, it's hard to go beyond the duality of that. And that many people then get addicted to the experience. Not that the, the drug itself is a, addicting, but that I want to keep going back there. And I remember, I remember taking psychedelics and going to the beach when I was going to Stanford and, and thinking, uh, when I'm done with this, I can be whoever I want to be. And I would drive back on my motorcycle back to Palo Alto, and my uh, personality would gradually reconstitute itself. I'd say, oh my God, there it is again. You know, and it was pretty much as solid as ever. But as long as you have this experience, whether it's through meditation or whether it's through raising triplets or whether it's through psychedelics or whether it's through music or sex, Consciousness doesn't care how you get there. But if you have that experience that you're not just this separate sack of skin walking around that's encasing in, 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 in an ego structure, but that you're all of this, then you still get angry, you still get afraid, you still have these experiences, but it's, it's contextualized in a much, much bigger space. <clears throat> uh, Pema Chodron has this wonderful quote where she says, you're the sky and everything else is just the weather. Okay, so the weather keeps coming. There's still uh, thunderstorms and lightning and hail and sunny days and, and beautiful clouds and, and, and scary clouds. But are you those, are you the weather or are you the sky that the weather's happening in? And once you've had the experience of being the sky, that's always there. And the weather comes and you get all bothered by it, but somewhere back inside, you remember that sky-like nature of your being. Any other remarks or questions? Please. Um, I just, not too long ago, read uh, Reza Aslan's book, God, which is kind of an evolutionary history of God, uh -huh. human history. Um, basically, his... his uh, Conclusion uh, was that we started out as pantheists and we're going to end up as pantheists. Um, and he's talking about universal consciousness of all things. And in between, we had many gods, and, we, and, and then we had a single god, and then we had a god that looked like, like us, but the god's going to become, um, w once again, like our cave people ancestor, who will see God and everything.
your example about cancer and suffering just made me think about a real paradox, which is that, of course, when we have cancer or any other kind of major problem, we want to address the problem. Yes. And yet at the same, I mean, so it's like wanting to heal yourself as you're falling apart. And to me, that's the, that's the paradox. You want to heal yourself, you said? Yeah, as, as while you're falling apart and, you know, dying. Well, heal means to make whole. So you're saying make whole as we're falling apart. And healing, to me, being whole means going beyond suffering. That healing can certainly include dying. Yeah. And in fact, what the whole in holistic healing is often dying. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're, we're, right. we're going to use herbs instead of prescription medicine to avoid the bad stuff. And uh, I want to stay alive. I've got a teenage son. Even if I didn't have a teenage son, I, I, my body really loves to breathe. Uh, but... Uh, <coughs> We really didn't talk much about motivation. Before Hinayana, Mahayana, Vajrayana, we look at motivation. You're going to die, but you don't know when. Life is precious, etc. What is it we really want? If we want to be free, then falling apart or fall, going into pieces or whatever uh, uh, phrase you use there can be a very useful pointing at what it is that still needs to be healed. It's very good news. Here's the place to bring my heart because... Here's a place I'm resisting. Here's a place that's causing suffering. If, on the other hand, you want to be happy, then that's pretty bad news that you're, you're, you're uh, going to pieces. The, if we're going toward truth, happiness will be a wonderful side effect. But if we're grasping at happiness, we have to be juggling. Is this a happy-making experience or not? Well, I've got two more minutes. I'd like to make a plug for me. <laughs> uh, I facilitate a ongoing small group in the Mission District on Monday nights near the corner of 18th and Guerrero, 6.30 to 8.30. There's a, it's called Healing at the Edge. Uh, some of your compatriots, Tom Bruin, uh, Jim Shalcom, Roy King had been part of that group off and on in the past. And there's a flyer about that. There's also a sheet out there in the right around the corner there that you can sign up on our mailing list if you'd like to get one or two emails a year. We, we don't share the mailing list with anybody else. And I'm very remiss at the most we send out two or three things a year. And there's our recent newsletter, which is yours free to take. If you're at all interested in that group, you can call up the number that's on the flyer. You can grab me after this, or there's some three by five cards. You could just put your name, phone number, and email, and I'd get a hold of you. So uh, we also have trained volunteers in all the Bay Area counties that offer free of charge, one-to-one -one spiritual support for people with life-threatening illnesses. Uh, and if you know anybody or are anybody that might want to avail yourself or themselves of that service, then just get a hold of the phone number that's plastered all over the literature that I put out on the table there.
Thank you all so very much. A very nice segue into our own announcements. Do we have any? Anyone? I want to make an announcement you would have because you're too modest to do it yourself. <laughs> uh, but Joey just showed me that his troupe is, and correct me if I'm wrong, is, is having a, a one time performance at the Jewish Museum on April 4th. And I think that would be a really cool thing to see. It's called the Resilience Project. It's a work that we do with veterans where they mm -hmm. tell their stories and then we make them into performative mm -hmm. things. Um, I, we wanted to call out on the altar today, I put this painting that came from one of our um, gay Buddhist prisoner fellows, Shane Markantel. He sent it with an, a card, and um, I won't read the whole card. It has a lot of about his uh, lineage, which I can't pronounce. But um, basically, he's just saying, showing his gratitude. He loves the newsletter. He loves our fellowship. He's very grateful every day. He said that the, um, the knot is a symbol of always being the, it's the endless knot, which is a um, symbol of being con connected, um, a small part of the greater whole. And so he just, he painted that for us. Um, it was lost in the mail. He was very sad about that. And it finally just showed up magically. So um, thank you, Shane. And th he says thank you to everyone. So. I don't know if we should put it out every week. Or yeah. Yeah, my name is Jim. I'm your host for the day. Um, there's hot water for tea. If you have tea, please just leave your cup in the sink and I'll um, wash it up. Um, I'll be going around with a dinosaur um, or standing, stalking at the door. Um, Donna means supporting, supporting priests, supporting poor people, and helping to support the village, the new village well, or Watertown. And that's what the GBF is. So feel free to give freely. Many of us were in an all-day retreat yesterday, which was an extraordinary um, thing. So this is a water tower or a deep well. So. Also, there are treats out there, some healthier than others, but all tasty. Um, and uh, around 12.30, people who want to go out to lunch together assemble at the doorway and proceed to some commonly agreed plan restaurant. So avail yourselves as you like. Uh, the monthly book group, Radical Dharma Discussion Group, is April 7th. It's the first Sunday of the month. Um, there's been email communications both on the Yahoo group and on the Facebook, so if you're curious, you can talk to me about it. But it's not a big group, big reading. It's just three articles, actually, this month. You could actually do it in a week's time, so if you're interested, give me a shout. A reminder that our talks are available on the internet at the GBF website, gaybuddhist.org. All right. Why don't you do that? I have okay. no idea what you're, whether you're even with me. By the power and truth of this practice, may all beings have happiness and the causes of happiness. 
May all be free from sorrow and the causes of sorrow. May all never be separated from the sacred happiness which is without sorrow. And may all live in equanimity, without too much attachment or too much aversion, believing in the equality of all that lives. Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.